What a wonderful opportunity that we have to worship God, and we appreciate that so very much. And we have some visitors among us, and we would hope that you would feel as you are, and that is an honored guest. This series that I began a while back, I've really enjoyed very much presenting it on the seven I am statements that Jesus made as recorded in the Gospel of John. This is number six. We've already noticed the following. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the door. He said, I am the good shepherd. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And now he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Just a little bit about this text, a little background here. This was on the eve of the crucifixion of our Lord. And he met one more time behind those locked doors with those disciples. He was eating the Passover feast with them. It was then that he instituted the memorial that we still uh, participate in today, and that is the communion, the Lord's Supper. He instituted it on this particular occasion with those disciples. It was also the night that he would be betrayed. Judas would sell our Lord for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. But on this night, as you've heard me say, I don't know, a hundred times, Jesus was no man's victim. There was nothing that Jesus didn't know, and Jesus was not surprised at all when they came to arrest him. He knew it all. He also wasn't surprised when Judas would betray him. He knew that. In fact, on this night, with those disciples behind those locked doors, he said, one of you will betray me. And then he said, I will be delivered into the hands of man, and he would lose his life on that occasion. You know what's beautiful about this, though? In the midst of all of this, Jesus gives comforting words to his disciples that they're going to need to get through their life, especially in the days following the Lord's crucifixion. He always thinks of his. You know, he would do this again, too, by the way. In the Garden of Gethsemane, after he prayed to his father three times, I won't spend a lot of time on this. After he prayed to his father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but yours be done. With a determined resolve, he looked out into the distance there, and here they come. The Roman cohort, 600 soldiers, a band of men led by the horrible betrayer, Judas Iscariot. Jesus sees them coming, and he goes out to meet them. And he says this, he says, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. They all fell down. They all got back up. He asked again, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I already told you that I am he. Therefore, let these go. He protected his own in the darkest, most difficult times in his life. But in this particular occasion, these words of comfort, he speaks concerning the place where he's going. In John chapter 14 and verses 2 and 3. And where I go, you know, Jesus said, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. First of all, what does the word mansions mean? In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. 
Thomas said, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way? And Jesus says, in my father's house are many mansions. The word mansion, by the way, in this passage means a staying place, an abiding place, a dwelling place, and abode. Okay. He tells them, I'm going to prepare a place. Now, in your mind, it kind of sounds like Jesus is saying this. I've kind of thought this too. But my conclusion doesn't really make sense. It sounds as though Jesus is saying, I got to go away so I can go build a place for you. I can go and create a place for you in heaven. But you know, that's not really what he's saying. Because the mansions that are there have always been there. The heaven that is going to be prepared for God's people is already prepared for God's people. So what does it mean when he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you? It literally means this. I'm going to make a reservation for you. I'm going to reserve a spot for you. You know, it's kind of like this. Tina's my travel agent. <clears throat> and any time over the, all the years we've been married that I was going to go somewhere, she makes a reservation for me at a hotel. She doesn't create the hotel. It already exists. She makes a reservation for me so that when I get there, it's ready for me. That's what Jesus was saying. He's telling those disciples, I'm going to go make a reservation for you in heaven. Because in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. That's what he meant when he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to make reservations for you. And you know what? Not just those disciples, but guess what? The faithful Christian that lives today. And has lived all the years beginning in Acts chapter 2. All those that are saved. All those that are the redeemed. He tells them that this place is prepared for them. And Thomas says this. Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you're going and how can we know the way? And Jesus said these beautiful words. And by the way, these are the most encouraging thoughts is the Lord's response. Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How are we going to get there? Where is it? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the sixth I am statement of Jesus. And you remember this too. The I am statements of Jesus indicate who Jesus was and is. And they also tell us a great deal about God himself. In fact, in John chapter 1 and verse 18, the Bible says no one has seen God at any time. Okay, These are exclusive words here, by the way. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son, that's Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. These are exclusive in nature, these statements. Just God and Jesus. So what are we saying? Jesus says three things. I'm the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. But what did he mean? First of all, first and foremost, he said, I am the way. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, we learn something very sobering. This is back in the Old Testament. And these were words that were given a long time ago, and they describe the following. They describe there's only two ways. Just two. Only two. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20, the two ways are life and good and death and evil. Now, we're talking about death here. Everybody's going to die physically unless the Lord comes back sooner before they're dead. Everybody's going to pass the chilly waters of death. Everyone. That's just part of life. 
So the death that we're talking about here is not physical death. It's talking about spiritual death. In other words, before us going all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, life has a choice. We choose good and there's life. We choose evil and then there's death. Spiritual life and spiritual death. Going all the way back to the Old Testament. All right, what about the New Testament? What kind of choices are we going to make? In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. And then he says, You cannot serve God and mammon. What does all that mean? Well, first of all, the slave-master relationship was well known. In fact, at the time, in this country, in that country, many people had slaves. There were many people that were slaves. They were the slave relationship. But everybody understood, and they would have known the concept, if you're trying to make a point and making an illustration to the slave-master relationship, they would have got it. You know why? Because it was very common. They all knew that. You had a master, and the master had slaves. Everybody also would have understood the concept that the slave would never divide his devotion between his master and somebody else. Wouldn't do it. Not only would he not do it, he wouldn't want to. I mean, after all, why would a slave that is enslaved to a master create devotion to that master and then devotion to another master? He wouldn't do that. Number two, if he did do that, he would be subjected to the punishment of his own master. So when Jesus starts speaking these words, they would have totally understood what he meant. You can't serve two masters. You can't be devoted to two masters. But then Jesus adds a little something his own self. He adds a little idea here. He said, you can't serve God and mammon. What is that? Mammon is what is trusted. It is a treasure. It is riches. Please don't misunderstand here. Jesus was not saying you can't have riches. He wasn't saying you can't have things in life that you enjoy that are not sinful and wrong. He didn't say that either. He didn't say you can't have any money. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say you can't have any money. What he's saying is don't divide your attention or your devotion between God and and anything else, and anyone else. Here's the simple point, folks. God must be number one in your devotion. That's it. And you can have things in life, surely you can, that are not sinful. And by the way, every good and perfect gift is from above. So every good thing in the world is because of God. And anybody in the world that's blessed with something good, that comes from God. That's a fact. Everybody enjoys that blessing from God in life. The point is, don't ever let it be that God competes with your devotion, for your devotion, with anything else. Well, let's talk about what Jesus said about two gates and two ways in a very familiar passage in the great Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few that find it. In the King James Version, it says the word straight, S-T-R-A-I-T. That's the straight gate. 
And it means narrow. And I like the way the New King James renders it because it says the word that it actually means. It is the narrow way. It's difficult. I want to make a point about this, though. Being a Christian, please get this. And stay with me, please, through this point so you don't misunderstand. I'm really trying hard for you to get. Living the Christian life is difficult and it's a struggle. It's difficult and it's a struggle. In Jude 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to what? Contend earnestly for the faith that once was delivered for the saints. The word contend there, by the way. It's a strengthened word in its origins, and it actually means to agonize. So the word contend means to agonize. Mr. Thayer said it this way. He said the whole idea is it's a matter of Christians facing the foe wherever he is, wherever the opposition is. Yes, Christianity is a struggle, and contention means to be agonizing in it. By the way, when I get done with this, it's going to be encouraging, but let's be realistic. we got to be realistic, and I'm going to tell you why in just a moment. You know why? First, this passage in Ephesians 6 and 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. All right. Here's some more reality. It's not easy. It's not. And I think people need to be realistic. You know what happens to people when they have unrealistic expectations? When they're about to embark upon an endeavor... And they have unrealistic expectations of easy. You know what happens when it's hard? They get discouraged and quit. You know why? Because their expectations were, it's going to be easy. My mother will remember this. Years ago, my whole family sold World Book. Back when they actually had book sales and all the educational products. And every year there was a great big convention somewhere in the United States. Everybody got all excited about making it to the convention. You wanted to sell enough so that conventions paid for and all that. You know why? Because you got there and you want to talk about getting pumped up. They'd get all the cream of the crop that were in the company, all the best salesmen. You know what they'd do? They'd get up and give their testimony. They'd say, look, this is what I did. And people get the idea, man, this is so easy. I'm going to go home and do all this. They get so high in the air, they got to look down and see the clouds. You know what happens? You go home and you start working and, uh-oh, it's hard. Wait a minute, I didn't think it was going to be hard. He made it sound real easy. You know what happens to those, especially the newcomers? They quit and they do something else. Unrealistic expectations. I don't want you to have an unrealistic expect expectation about being a Christian. I just want you to understand what it is, and it's worth it. It's worth it. Yeah, it's going to be a struggle sometimes, folks. It really is. That's what the Bible says. Paul, in this passage, likens the Christian warfare to a wrestling contest. Very common in those days, by the way. And, you know, I'm not a wrestler. I never was a wrestler. But I think you have, if you pin a guy for two seconds or so, you, you win the match. But back then, wrestling contests were quite different. What they did in a wrestling context, contest, 
Not only did you have to pin the opponent, but you had to take your hand on the neck of the opponent and hold his neck down, his head down, until that opponent or that other person that you're beating acknowledges his defeat. You had to hold them down until they say, I'm tapping out. That's what Paul's talking about. It's that kind of, it's that kind of a contest. The idea is the antagonist or the opponent must be held down. Now, let me ask you something. Who is our opponent? Who is it? Who's our greatest antagonist? It's the devil. In James chapter 4 and verse 7, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In your life, you're going to have to wrestle with the devil. Why? Because all the temptations, and by the way, the devil doesn't come at you with all the ugly, mean, terrible, bad stuff. Because if, if he did, he'd, he'd run from it. We all would. Be easy. The devil comes and tempts us with things that we like. Tempts us with things that we enjoy. Appeals to our flesh. Appeals to our fun side. And if things are fun and they're okay, it's not from the devil. But if there are things that are fun and it's not okay, those things are from the devil. So we're in a wrestling contest with the devil. And we need to rise up against him. How do you do it? Submit to God. What else do you got to do? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And I promise you this. If you have temptations from the devil and you're struggling, go to God in prayer right then and there. Submit yourself to God and pray to God. You know what? The devil will leave you for a time. But he always comes back. But you can have the power to keep him on the run. All right, James 4 and verse 7, a very practical passage of Scripture. Yes, being a Christian requires effort and sacrifice. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. And he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. All right, what does it mean to deny yourself? It means to disown one's earthly interest. And again, what are we talking about? We're just saying this. Nothing's going to be more important than God. That's all. And by the way, when Jesus says that if a, if a person has to do this and has to do that and hate this one and love the other and all, he's not saying that you have to have horrible feelings about your loved ones. He just means you've got to love God more. That's it. You've got to put God first. So you may not have to give up your earthly riches to be a Christian. You may not have to. I think we live comfortable lives. The question is this, you have to be willing to disown your earthly interest, if need be, to serve God. That's what it means. What else? It's a life of sacrifice. He says, take up your cross. This was a figurative phrase based on the practice of a doomed man carrying his cross to the place of crucifixion. And that's exactly what Jesus did. So in our life, we don't literally take up a wooden cross. We literally, in our life, in a figurative sense, I mean, in a figurative way, we carry our cross, meaning we are willing to sacrifice for Jesus in our life. What are you going to do? Put God first and realize it's a life of sacrifice. So this way is what? This way is the way of Christians. What else? Acts 16 and 17. This girl followed Paul and said and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. 
It's also the way of God in Acts chapter in Acts chapter 18 and verse 26. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Aquila and Priscilla heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So what is the way? It's a great way. It's the way of Christians. It's the way of salvation. It's the way of God. And here's why it's so worth it. It's the way to heaven. It's the way to heaven. Let me ask you a question. You want to go to heaven? Think about that. I would imagine there's no one here in this audience that would say, nope, not me, I want to go to hell. You want to go to heaven? There's a way to heaven. Jesus says you've got choices to make too. Matthew 7, 14, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to what? Leads to life. And there are few that find it. Also, folks, listen to this. It's sometimes the lonely path. Sometimes you feel like you're all by yourself. It's the lonely path. I did tell you there's some good stuff coming. I'm presenting the realistic side. Sometimes it's going to be difficult. And I do that, like I said before, so when things are difficult and lonely, you don't quit. You just understand what it is. This is oftentimes the lonely path, but this is the path that our Savior our good shepherd is leading us with love. In the 23rd Psalm, he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And those that walk on this road and stay on this road will receive eternal life. So very important. In Romans chapter 2, we got to have some stay in power. Eternal life to those by what? Who by patient, continuous Continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. What does this mean? Beat says it this way, one scholar. It signifies the brave holding up under burdens which would cost, cast us down, oppressing forward in the face of foes who would drive us back, and that patience manifests itself in good works. Got to have some stay in power. Revelation 2 and 10. I won't spend very much time on this, but I got, we, got, we have to look at this passage. In the seven churches of Asia, one of the letters from Jesus through John was the church at Smyrna. That was the persecuted church. And this is what was said to them. They were under tremendous persecution. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten Days, be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. This phrase, be faithful unto death, okay? It sounds on the surface like he's just saying this. Uh, be faithful all of your life or until your death. And it includes that, but contextually that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. Be faithful even if it takes your life. Even if you lose your life, be faithful. Even if it costs you and you die, don't worry about that. He said, I'll give you a crown of life. Now, there's a lot said about this phrase here, 10 days. What's 10 days? I've read commentators that said 10 days, a day represents a year. So 10 days is 10 years. And some say a lifetime. Some say a short lifetime. It really doesn't matter. This is what it means. 10 days refers to a full and complete period. It may be long or short. 
But it will come to an end. It means to have a willingness to die rather than quit. And that's what it means. Ten days. You know, sometimes people, well, there's those that preach the idea of a period of tribulation. And they say it comes after Jesus comes back. And there is a period of tribulation. No. The tribulation is right now. It began all the way back in Acts chapter 2 when the church was established. It began all the way back there. It will exist until time shall be no more. That is the period of tribulation. So when Jesus comes back, it's over with. It's, it's good for the saved. No tribulation. And those that are lost are cast into the lake of fire. That's what it says. You may have some difficult stuff going on in your life, but you can make it. What else? Not only is he the way. There's no other way to get to God except through Jesus Christ. But secondly, Jesus says, I am the truth. Jesus is the word of God. And what's that mean? In John chapter 1, and beginning in verse 1 there, he says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The phrase, the word, it was with God. Now, that word in the, in the Greek is from logos. And it was a word used to express reason and speech and thought and expression. Now, obviously, the word here is referring to Jesus Christ before Jesus was born in the flesh. He was known as the word. And the word was with God. But there's more. Then it says, and the word was God. And this is where people get confused. I'm going to try not to be confusing here. The word was God. First of all, in these two clauses, the first clause, in the beginning was the word, shows the Lord's eternal existence, number one. The second clause is the Lord's distinct personality. He was God. Okay. Here's the, here's the attributes of his deity. He is God. I'm going to try to explain as, as simply as I can. There are three separate persons in the Godhead. They are God, they are Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. There are three separate persons in the Godhead. Not one person, three persons in the Godhead. And those three persons in the Godhead... They are one in purpose. They agree with each other. They are working together as one. All in the Godhead, working together. So what does it mean when it says the word was God? And what does it mean when it says Jesus is God? It's very simple. This is what Zer said. I want to put this on the screen. This really explains it very simply for me. How do you sort out, well, wait a minute. If they're all God, how can it be three persons? Here it is. The word was God, that phrase, is said on the basis that God is the family name of deity. Hence, any member of that family would rightfully take that name just as any member of the Smith family would take on the name Smith. Are they all the same person? No. There's a bunch of Smiths. The family name. What about God? 
It's the family name of deity. And God the Father has it, the Son has it, and the Holy Spirit has it. They bear the name of deity. Three separate persons, though, working together. And by the way, that's why Jesus is called God in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, still talking about Jesus, Counselor, still talking about Jesus, Mighty God, still talking about Jesus, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He bears the family name of deity, and that is God. It also explains this, too, why the phrase Church of Christ and Church of God are often used interchangeably in the New Testament. Acts 20 and 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Who died on the cross? Who shed his blood? It was Jesus. Here he's called, it's called the church of God because church of God and church of Christ are the same. Are the same. All right. Then what happened to this word? Well, he became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word of God, please get this, is truth. In John 17 and 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. In Psalm 119, and verse 160, the entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgment endures forever. Here's another passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men. Hold it right there. I have to make a point. Because we're talking about truth. And the Apostle Paul makes a distinction between the word of men and the word of truth. Why do I make that point? Because sometimes people today believe in this concept. That every man or every person determines what truth is for their life. And there's no such thing as absolute truth. Not according to Paul. Paul makes a distinction. You didn't receive it because it came from man. You received it as it came from God, the word of truth. Let me take it a step further. If I, as a man, come up with a philosophy that is against God's word, it's the way of man. It's not the way of God. If I preach the truth from the word of God, even though it's coming out of the mouth of a man, it is the word of God. And that's how those in Thessalonica received the word which Paul's talking about when it was preached to them. It came from God. What else is this truth going to do for us? John 8, 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Romans chapter 8 and verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Okay. Truth brings us to heaven. And those who live in truth or by the truth have their names written in the book of life. Now, do me a favor, would you, as we're progressing now. I want you to wrap your mind around the concept of being in the book of life. Because I'll tell you, you want to be in that. We all want to be in that. Everybody wants to be in that book of life. 
Okay? The truth of the word of God leads us to be found in the book of life. It leads us to be put in the book of life. We all want that. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 3. And I urge you also, true companion, help those women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, notice, whose names are in the book of life. The phrase book of life comes from an Old Testament passage where it describes God's covenant people. It goes all the way back to Exodus 32 and beginning there in verse 32. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Those who overcome, folks will be found written in the book of life. John the Revelator said in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. You know the phrase, he who overcomes, is the same idea as be faithful unto death. Zer says this, that phrase is a universal practice for institutions that consist of individual membership to keep a record of its names in a book. That fact is the basis for the figurative idea of book of life in which the Lord keeps a list of his people. The point is that all whose names are in there may be considered in good standing with the Lord. I want to be in the book of life and I want to stay in there. Because if I do that, I'm in good standing with the Lord. And by the way, the only relationship that matters the absolute most in your life, we have a lot of relationships, the only one that matters the greatest, second to none, is our relationship with the Lord. That's all that matters. And you know why? Because if we don't get that right, nothing else matters. Nothing. Remember Glenn Osborne used to say, if there is no God, then nothing matters. But if there is a God, nothing else matters. That's the most important relationship that you will ever have. I want to be in good standing with the Lord. I want to be in that book of life. All right. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, though, here's some sobering words. We've got to use this too. It's talking about those that reject the truth. They're not going to be found in the book of life. But look at this very sobering passage. Paul wrote this, 2 Thessalonians 1. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. I want to ask you the question again. Are you in the book of life? Are you in there? Revelation chapter 20 verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. What did Jesus say then? He said, I'm the way. There's no other way. He said, I'm the truth. There's nothing else that will guide you and lead you. And then he says this, finally, Jesus is the life. He said, I am the life. 
Without Jesus, there is no life. We learn in John chapter 1 and verse 3, he's creator. He was there in the very beginning with God. When the Bible says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, it included Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in the creation. In Jesus only there is life. Without him, there is no life. In fact, John chapter 1 and verse 4 tells us that very thing. In him was life. Number three, what else does he do? As life, it upholds all things by the word of his power. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. In him all things consist. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17. All right. Now, in Romans chapter 6, there's a contrast there. For the wages of sin is death. And again, we're talking about spiritual death. Okay? Spiritual death. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Except the precious little kids, they haven't sinned. And if they lost their life, their precious little lives, they'd go straight to heaven. They'd be saved. They'd go straight to heaven. They'd make it right to, right to heaven. But everybody else that gets old enough to be able to know better, especially from a moral choice, and commits a sin, which is every one of us at some point in our life, it's, it begins. We become accountable for our sins. Well, what Paul says is this. What you got coming for sin is spiritual death, separation from God. Here's the great news, though. It doesn't have to happen. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to talk about the kind of life that it is, by the way. In John chapter 10 and verse 10. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Okay. Remember when I said that sometimes being a Christian is a struggle, sometimes it's hard work, sometimes it's discouraging, sometimes it's lonely. All that's true, but guess what? The life that we're talking about here, well, what Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly, that word abundantly means overflowing richfulness. That is the life of a Christian. Overflowing richfulness. Burton Kaufman wrote this. I love this. How grotesque and unreal are the ideas of those who think the Christian leads a life of boring inhibition, sitting out his years in the chilly twilight of a monastic gloom, forbidden to do anything that anyone else wants to do, and always cowering in the fear before an angry God. On the contrary, the Christian life is the happy life, free, abundant, overflowing, adventurous, exciting beyond any other kind of existence. Why can't men believe their creator to the effect that the way of Christ is the way of joy and fulfillment? It's the best life. It is the greatest life. And do you know why? That's what... Let me get practical. That's why when a faithful child of God passes away, we're saddened because they're not in our presence anymore. Oh, but we rejoice because you know why? This ain't it. There's a better life after this one. A Christian has an abundant life and lives his life with the abundant riches, understanding all that he gets, all that she gets by being a Christian. In conclusion this morning, Jesus says, I'm the way, I am the truth, and the life. But 
Here's the rest of the story. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is the way of God today. In this idea, this is specific. All and only. So if we would look at this passage like this, all those that would come through Jesus Christ can go to the Father. It also means only those that go through Jesus Christ can go to the Father. There's no other way except through Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this. Remember when I asked you the question, are you in the book of life? Are you following Jesus according to the truth that we talked about today? If not, then I ask you this question. Are you ready to follow Jesus? Are you ready? Here are the steps to follow Jesus. Here they are. Very simple. I'm going to put every one of them on the screen. You've got to hear the word of God. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We've done that today. But after you hear the word of God, you got a choice to make. Jesus said, you got to make this choice. What's the choice? you got to believe with all your heart. Hebrews 11 and 6, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Do you believe in Jesus with all your heart? Today, surely you do. Then we got to make a change. All that means is i got to repent. I've been going in this direction. I don't want to go in that direction anymore. I want to follow Jesus. That's called repentance. I'm going to change my life. You've got to repent of those sins, Acts 17 and 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. What else? i got to make the confession. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The greatest words you will ever say. When Philip was preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch, they came to a body of water, and the man said, well, here's water. What's keeping me from being baptized? Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but it is now the point of salvation when you're baptized for the remission of your sins. Mark 16, 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. If you'll do all of that, your sins will be washed away. You'll become a child of God. And you know what's going to happen? Your name's going to be in that book of life. If you've never taken those steps of obedience, we'd love to assist you in doing that right now. Today, during our invitation, you come forward and let your request be made known. But maybe, maybe you have taken all those steps. Maybe your life just isn't what it should be. Maybe you have some changes you need to make. Maybe you've, you've strayed and gone away. That's the case then. What a great time to come back to Jesus today while we stand, while we sing. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.